So the gospel and a new community, what we're looking at this morning. What did it look like? How much did it grow? Surely this kind of numerical growth, individual and community transformation is what we're looking for today. What things can we learn about those early believers that would inspire us at Burlington today? My prayer is that through this series we'll get our heads up and our shoulders back and we'll see that this thing we call church isn't just about us plodding down to London Road every Sunday morning, but that across the ages and across the cultures and into an eternal, all-embracing future, God is fulfilling his global purposes and that together we are a real functioning part of his family, his church and his kingdom. I want that to give us hope, uh, to build our faith, to become confident, even proud of our gospel. And I want it to help us to be totally at ease and excited about demonstrating and proclaiming Christ in our lives and our communities. So what do the scriptures uh, tell us about this community? We've had some of these verses read to us. It's one from Acts 1, 14, beginning of chapter 2. We picked it up again at the end of chapter 2. What's the common word that you can see running through there? Together. Together. We want to be together. And uh, there's other scriptures as well. Um, Just have a little look at that. Sometimes when David was reading the scriptures, you might have just been thinking about something else at the time. And uh, uh, just have a look at that lifestyle again of the early church, full of devotion of, to teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread, to prayer, a sense of awe, wonders, signs, everything in common, selling possessions. Does it remind you of the life of Burlington Baptist Church? Every day continued to meet together, They broke bread in homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying favour, and God adding to their number daily. It's quite a story, isn't it? And if we were to have taken it just a little bit further, the end of Acts chapter 4, there's a similar testimony of the uh, lifestyle of the early believers. One heart and mind, possessions were shared, Great power testifying to the resurrection of Jesus. Great grace was upon them all. Not a needy person. Sometimes people who owned lands and houses sold them and brought the sales to the apostles' feet, distributed as anyone had need. Just have a look at that for a few minutes. Story of Joseph. It's wonderful, isn't it? It's amazing. Now, last week when um, Dave was talking with us, um, in his excellent introduction to our teaching series last week, he described Acts as God going global. Do you remember the four Ps that he said? I know it's a whole week ago, but does Dave remember the four Ps? (laughs) Well, I wrote them down, but so uh, proof power, perspective, and purpose. Does that sound right? Resurrection facts were established. 
the Holy Spirit was poured out, the mindset of the disciples began to be adjusted towards alignment with God's heart and plans, and they began to grasp a sense of the role that they themselves had to play in this new covenant kingdom that God was calling them into. God going global. And then, under his perspective heading, Dave talked, highlighted what he called a seismic shift that was required in the disciples' thinking, and how despite of all Jesus' training about the kingdom, they still thought in terms of Israel being the kingdom. They were still thinking regionally, if you like, or maybe nationally, where God was thinking ends of the earth. They were still thinking politically, maybe strategically. God was thinking kingdom. Now, during the next few weeks, we'll see just how seismic the shift needed to be for the disciples and their worldview, and how even the sudden, mighty, supernatural outpouring of the Holy Spirit didn't actually result in an instant or 100% transformation in their thinking. Change is a deep and complex process. But on the day of Pentecost, as we just read, Peter preached to note the global crowd, Jews from every nation under heaven, we read. And uh, we, we, uh, Dave took it as far as verse 14. Some say this was the first recorded game of cricket. Peter stood up with the 11 and was bold. I know it's years since you heard that one. And then he picked it up again at verse 40. The final plea that he made to the crowd that day was this, save yourselves from this crooked or corrupt generation. You know, I'm suggesting that when we first heard these words, none of us actually realized just how much saving there was to be done. And I don't think even Peter then realized just how much saving there needed to be done in order to truly transform a person's behavior. Our behaviors have been formed and molded by the teaching and the mentoring and the modeling that we've seen and heard from our family, from our education, from media, uh, from our peers, etc., by our culture, by our experiences, good and bad, into values and beliefs and a worldview. We behave the way we do because of what we value, what we believe, and how we view the world. Why am I saying all this? Well, it might seem very clever of us to retrospectively observe and analyze where the disciples were conditioned by their worldview to believe certain things and behave in certain ways. But it would be far cleverer of us, wouldn't it, if we could see where we do the same 2,000 years later and living in an entirely different world and culture. In other words, could there possibly be certain scriptures that we translate through the conditioning of our own age and culture and thus hear the gospel of the kingdom slightly differently from the way that Jesus actually said it or meant it or lived it? For example, culturally, we often look at things with a time orientation. Uh, where the cultures of the scriptures were often more event-orientated. We're more future-orientated. We love planning. And the environment of the New Testament tends to be more present-oriented. 
We're performance-orientated, over and against status orientation. We come from a a guilt and innocence culture, not a shame and honour one. So it might surprise us that there are actually more references to shame and honour in the scriptures than actually to guilt and innocence. Our thinking tends to be dualist, not holistic, analytical, concept-focused, rather than experience and circumstance. And the one that I really want to focus on this morning is that I would suggest that we have relegated, as a society, we have relegated the collective and community in favour of individualism, personal initiative, and independence. Now, community, openness, friendship. So the disciples might have been slow to understand that God was now going global and that the kingdom would not come through political fight, but through love and prayer and faith and trust in God. But I don't think they had any huge problems with the fact that the gospel had now thrust them into a new community, a covenant community, because community, openness, friendship, they were not big issues for them. Not only had Jesus lived it and trained it, but it was in their culture as well. But covenant and community is no longer deep in our culture, is it? Our society, I would suggest, has flung itself to worship at the throne of individualism and independence, of rights and choice and materialism. And that's a cultural shift which has influenced believers as well as non-believers, let's be honest. And it's made us frighteningly hedonistic and selfish and isolated and egocentric because we're worth it. So maybe when it comes to communities, to submitting ourselves to our leaders, to laying down our lives for one another, to sharing our possessions with those who are in need, it's us Westerners that should take another really fundamental look at the Scriptures for fear of missing completely or at best seriously watering down what this foundational characteristic of the kingdom is actually all about. Some of you will have, heard a little, will have heard a little of my testimony and how for many years when pastoring churches, my family and I lived a common purse, community, household lifestyle. As the church grew, so about one third of the congregation lived together. We were called all sorts of names by our neighbours and one of the more polite ones was to describe us as extended households. Uh, we were, uh, the, the premise was this, mum and dad and a couple of kids were normal households we were extended. But I'm not so sure. When you compare them with the lifestyle of the early believers, maybe instead we should start to think of typical small family units as diminished households. Debate. Whilst being a pastor with Praise Community Church, I lived at different times with a total of 40 other people, some single, some married families, many of them vulnerable and with special needs. And I've been given and have given away houses and cars And do you know in that time saw more miracles and more people coming to Christ um, when living that way than at any other time in my life? So alongside our bold proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the community of the local church, I would suggest, is the clearest demonstration we have to offer of that same Lord Jesus Christ. As he said, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another.
even for those who were not able to live together in one of our households, I felt one of my primary jobs as a local church pastor was to create or to facilitate an environment whereby new believers could be integrated into the church by developing what we call three to five friendships. Um, one or two friendships could create cliques and be inward looking. So three to five. What does I mean by friends? I meant a few people special to us who, where possible, we voluntarily chose ourselves and with whom we specifically and unashamedly expressed the covenant of the heart in a daily and ongoing way, including confession of sin, expressing forgiveness, sacrificial servanthood and sharing of possessions as any had need. And it seems that the church in our days invests so much into its meetings and its buildings and its programs, its projects, its ministries, its counselling, its conferences, whatever our language is, that there's actually precious little time or energy left to actually live shared lives. Now, you know, I value all these functions and activities and invest into them myself. But actually, deep down, I believe that a normal functioning, loving, connected, New Testament community lifestyle is actually the environment where most healing comes from. In July this year, I spent some time with the Uzbek minorities in Osh in southern Kyrgyzstan following the ethnic violence that is still taking place there. Officially, 335 people died in the June uprising. Some say up to 10 times that number lost their lives. And 1,700 homes were destroyed. Now, despite them being burned down and these devout Muslim communities still being in deep shock over the barbaric torture and killings that many of their number had been subjected to, I found that their mahalas, their small complexes of houses formed in a square with a central courtyard, an extremely attractive style of life. More than just accommodation, these are historic yet dynamic local units of self-governance involving religious ritual and ceremony and resource management, conflict resolution, etc. And here the elderly were cared for and respected alongside their children and their children's children. If not related by blood, the vulnerable, the lame, those with mental ill health were gathered up, honoured and totally accepted in these units of 15 to 20 or so people. So here grew trust and respect and leadership and followership and the, the inclusive normality of shared living. One of the greatest issues facing the UN there now is to contend with a government strategy that wants to rebuild these destroyed communities with apartment blocks. When will we ever learn? I want to give you a quote here from someone. My philosophy, in essence is the concept of man as a heroic being with his own happiness as the moral purpose of life and uh, with productive achievement as his noblest activity and reason as his only absolute. So said Ayn Rand, American mid-20th century writer and thinker on individualism, a philosophy that seems to me to have led us down a really lonely maze of demanding human rights where contracts have replaced covenants, where accountability and submission to authority are seen as threats, um, where honour and respect are outdated and embarrassing, and where liberalism, personal freedom, 
ethical egoism, human, humanism, hedonism, objectivism, rational thought, all these things reign supreme. And more, much more than this, I did it my way. Now, we may not recognize all those words or isms, but we live in them every single day. We only have to watch a couple of adverts on the television, and that's the spirit of what we get, whether we know it or not. Now, with a society built on such a foundation, no wonder all our confused attempts at social inclusion and community integration seem to have profited us so precious little in the UK. More people in England live on their own than ever before despite worrying housing shortages and according to the BBC, experts have predicted single, that is individual people um, make up 30, individual people on their own make up 38% of all households by 2026, up from 18% in 1971. And the latest English housing survey say we're on 29% back now, or 2008, 2009. Did you hear of the man who was so scared of commitment that he wasn't even sure he wanted to be a member of the public? (laughs) So community, togetherness, commitment to people, these are not concepts that are hugely loved in our incredibly individualistic, independent, initiative-based society. Now, in recent years, the government spent millions on an initiative called Supporting People, SP, an outcome of the care in the community philosophy that many of you will be familiar with or working within that field, and which is designed through housing and support to maximise the independence of vulnerable people groups. And its strap line up there, as you can see, is supporting independence. Until it squeezed all the creativity out of me, I worked in this sector for 10 years, including the first three pioneering years of supporting people. Now, maybe I missed the point. And I'm also sure it's moved on and learned many valuable lessons since then. But I had one very fundamental problem with it. I couldn't see independence as the highest goal for vulnerable humankind. I see that independence is a whole lot better than dependence. But I longed to be able to support people moving on from dependence through independence into interdependence. But at least at the time, that was never on the SP agenda. Of course, I've gone from one SP to another now. (laughs) Samaritan's Purse. Last month in August, I led a small team to Rwanda. Alan Barker was on the team. Well, I say I led the team after hurting my back. It was the team that looked after me. But eight people between 19 and 72 years of age, nothing to previously attract one to another other than the purpose of this team, which was to discover the issues faced by rural communities in East Africa after the genocide and and HIV. Now, this team lived and worked and travelled and room-shared together in grace and servanthood, an absolute joy to be with. I've been involved in the leading of approximately 90 different short-term teams to 30 different countries over the last 30 years. And one of the things that I really notice is one of the great spin-offs of short-term mission teams is that they are a microcosm of what Jesus meant by community. And for some people I take on teams, it's absolutely evident that they've never known such intimacy and such fulfillment. Most absolutely love it, even though it quickly exposes and hopefully begins to rub off some of the crusty edges of selfishness from us. But I actually mention that um, 
Rwanda trip for a different reason. We lived and learned and worked alongside the Anglican Church there, who, with support from Samaritan's Purse, had developed a model of home groups that just after, after just two years had brought nothing short of transformation to the lives of hundreds of desperately poor people. Their home groups act also as saving schemes. So clusters of 10 or so people self-selecting, meeting weekly, sometimes twice a week as cell groups, save between three and five pounds collectively to, to gather a week, sometimes with the parish match funding or maybe after looking at things carefully, granting loans to the group. And in fact, the church has granted something like five and a half thousand pounds in loans to these groups in the last couple of years. And the groups themselves give loans to self-selected members of the group from time to time as the money builds up. They say, we are neighbours, we love and we trust one another. And this is not just social, it's business. So we're not going to risk our savings on something we think won't work. Now, the beneficiaries often set up businesses buying and selling fruit, charcoal, crafts. And this asset-based approach to neighbourhood development has certainly changed the mindset of many of the men and women that we met, from one of dependency to a sense of purpose and fulfilment. One of them said, we are architects now of our own future. The church uses the gospel and scripture, for example, the parable of the talents, to envision the community in this holistic lifestyle. Another quote from them, the best thing about this group is not the loans and the savings themselves, this is what one mother told me, it's the prayer, it's the support, the encouragement we're all able to give one another. And as we moved through this informal settlement in the middle of Kigali, the capital, we visited a food store and a tailor and a charcoal seller, and they all had very similar stories. Again and again, we heard the same comment from those who had committed themselves to these cell group saving schemes. We love one another, they said. The very best thing about saving groups is the friendship, the fellowship, the support we're able to give one another. And these were natural, functioning home groups, And they reminded me very much of Acts chapter 2, each one sharing as anyone had need. I don't know how your home group functions, but could it benefit from a saving scheme? I don't mean to set up small businesses. We're not in the same financial position as those people necessarily. But maybe it could send people on mission or some other outreach in your neighbourhood. So there are public implications of having a personal saviour. Evangelism has for 100 years preached for a clearly defined goal, the goal of seeing as many people as possible receiving Jesus as their personal saviour, being saved, being born again. I did just that when I was eight, and without doubt, it's the best decision of my life. But the gospel I was taught seemed to stop there, maybe with some final sweep-up statement about joining a church in the same way as like-minded people might join a gym or an evening class. We even sang a song called You in Your Small Corner and I in Mine. So this gospel told me nothing about relationship or about its impact on community, on society and on the environment. But on the day of Pentecost, back to Peter again and his preaching, he didn't just preach save yourself, but save yourselves from this crooked generation, 50 years after receiving Christ personally, truly, intimately. I'm still seeing just how much saving I need individually and we need collectively 
from a generation that seems to be getting more and more crooked, more and more isolated, more and more shallow, more and more materialistic year by year. My joyful proclamation this morning is, yes, Jesus Christ is my personal saviour. Without him sacrificially dealing with my sin on the cross and welcoming me into his accepting resurrection presence, I have nothing. If I remain in him and he in me, I will bear much fruit, but apart from him, I can do nothing. But it is a whole lot more than just my personal saviour. As Peter preached on that day, Acts 2.36, God has made this Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He's the Lord and Master of the universe, and he calls me by his purposes, not only into a personal relationship with him, but also equally into an interpersonal relationship with you, the church, and with society, and the environment, locally, regionally, and these days increasingly, although always the intent, globally, cross-culturally. If you are in covenant with Christ, and I am in covenant with Christ, guess what? Like it or not, we are in covenant with one another. This is the clear teaching of the New Testament. It's only in relationship, in community, that we can truly work out our salvation. Anything less than that in our lives will actually still revolve around ourselves, which is selfishness, which is sin, which is exactly what Jesus died to save us from. Interesting, isn't it? English possibly, I don't know uniquely, I don't know I'm not a linguist at all, but unusually the second person personal pronoun, you, singular and plural in English. So we don't quite know if we're talking single or plural when we use the word you. It wasn't always like that. Apparently you was plural and thou was singular. But these days can be single or plural. So I think we need to see that so many of the biblical yous that we've taken actually as promises for individual believers, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, looking any other language, are actually collective in context. You, plural, yous, y'all. Which is obvious when you think about it. You know, you, Jesus didn't say you are a grain of salt. Oh, a grain of salt. But salt, you know, the context is collective, is corporate. You are the light of the world. You are a light of the world, but the context, a city set on a hill. It's the community. And so much of the thinking of the New Testament scriptures, of Old Testament scriptures too, is collective and maybe we're just taking it firstly individually or personally and not quite understanding to the same depth um, the, the importance of taking it communally, if you like. Proverbs 18, verse 1, it's always a scripture that's intrigued me. In the Amplified Bible, it says, He who is estranged seeks pretexts to break out against all sound judgment. Now, I love it in that version, but let's do it again in the NASP. He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. Or if you really want it in the message, we'll do it again. Loners who care only for themselves spit on the common good. 
Wisdom says we need one another. And so, in our thinking and our conversation and in our commitment and in our worldview, I would suggest we need to redeem the concept of community because through the grace of God we have become the community of the redeemed.